Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. How are you doing over there? Hello. This episode is here to surprise anyone who uh, maybe just listened too quickly to our big announcement and thought we were like ending things then and there. Like, surprise, we still have a few episodes left. <laughs> not dead yet. <laughs> uh, not dead yet. The Anna Namina story. I love it. Uh, how are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, as you like to say. I'm here. We're here. We're here. We're here. <laughs> Well, I'm very excited about this week's episode um, because I talked to one of my favorite writers, Nicole Perkins. So excited. Love Nicole. Love her work. Well, Nicole's work is really amazing. Like she is a, you know, like grade A podcaster, grade A poet. And now she's like written this book called Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, um, a Prince lyric you might recognize. Mm. Um, and and the book is so fun. I mean, like, you know, classic Nicole. It's really using like her own obsession with pop culture to talk about like how she navigates like relationships as a black woman so it's like you know like if you're a fan of like feminism fan fiction um you know anything that's like southern lore this is the book for you she like even made me like rethink the tv show frasier and i'm like seriously rewatching it right now because of her so um i won't give away too much but um nicole's book is amazing and it's available wherever you buy books Hi, Nicole. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I love the show. I love you. I love everything. I'm, I'm just really excited to be here. <laughs> Mutual Appreciation Society. I love when it works out. Well, Nicole, you're, you know, like you are an amazing pop culture commentator. You're like an iconic podcast host, uh, Thirst Aid Kit, still, still number one in our hearts. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thank um, you. And, you know, and you're like, an, you're an amazing poet and like a wonderful writer. Um, and, you know, today I want to talk to you about Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, which is your like new, well, it's your, um, your unflinching memoir that came out in August. Uh-huh. And all of the writing I had read from you um, was like predominantly poetry at that point. And so mm-hmm. I think that when the book showed up, I had expected it to be poems, but just because I'm like, because I didn't read the marketing material because I'm an idiot, not because it was like signaled <laughs> anywhere. And it was so exciting to open it and be like, oh my God, she's writing essays. She's going to tell me, she's going to tell me all the things. And I'd been rereading the Sam Irby um, book of essays and it was such a seamless transition into reading, um, into reading your, into reading your essays. I wonder, um, I wonder what that experience was like for you to like write, to like write a memoir in essays. Uh, it was very different. Uh, I'm used to writing personal essays online and then writing personal essays in a book form is almost completely different. Um, Mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, when you're online, you have to kind of get in, get to the point and get out because you know that you have to hold your reader's attention in a particular way because they're going to be tired of looking at their phone or they're going to like, 
you know, click to one of their 200 tabs that they have open or something like that. So you have to be really quick. Um, and usually online uh, personal essays have to, in my experience, for the most part, they seem to want to be very neatly tied uh, at the end, you know, and give you the the lesson and tell you, you know, give you a pat on the back and tell you this, this is how it could be for you um, in many cases. And writing essays for a book, I did not want to have that neat ending. I did not want to have, um, I did not want to give like instructions or give uh, bullet points for how someone else could conquer these their similar challenges. Um, and I also just really enjoy being able to sit with uh, the essay a bit longer and let people like absorb what I was saying a bit more and um, have the freedom of them of readers being able to kind of like flip back pages or scroll back through pages or to rewind a little bit to hear something again if they're listening through the audiobook. Um, so that was that was I really enjoyed that part of it, like being able to sit um, with it. And I had to get out of the habit of writing online. Uh, my editor would just be like, okay, why don't you sit with this a little more and expand on this a little more? Because I was so used to being like, oh, they don't need this background or I don't have time to give this background. Mm-hmm. Let me just you know, get to it. Different speeds. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and Samantha Irby's, uh, work was a very strong influence, um, on, on how I approached, uh, my memoir at this collection, because I just really, I loved how accessible her language was. I love how funny she was. Of course I could be anywhere near as funny as she is, but it's just like, I just really loved how open and vulnerable she was in, in her unique way. And so I tried to figure out how to be um, similarly open and vulnerable, but as Nicole and not like Nicole imitating Samantha Irby. Um, but it was I'm just- i tell you that you hit it out of the park, Nicole, because oh, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I was really left thinking just like, I was like reading you, I was thinking about my own writing and I was like, oh, like here it, like something I think that you- you did really well, which you, you've already articulated is that, um, you know, so much of the book is about, uh, you know, it's, it's like about you and like being like a self realized, like black woman. And the thing that it left me feeling is that like, none of that is about like a neat, like a neat ending, or you never tie it. You Like you just sit in complication in a way that I appreciated. And I think that you also, your writing voice is just like really delightful. And there were, there were so many times that I just like sat there taking notes for myself (laughs) and um, you know, and sometimes like when you're reading to interview someone, that's not like my experience is like, okay, I'm taking notes to like ask a questions for interview, not for my own craft purposes. And Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think, I don't know. I really like appreciated that about, um, about reading this. Thank you. Thank you. I definitely wanted to, um, to be honest in all of my messiness and make sure people realize that again, I don't have the answers, but I am constantly evolving and working on myself. And that was a reason that I, I put in some chapters where I don't come across very well. You know, I made some mistakes and did some, um, you know, kind of bad things, some dirty things. And I just had to own um, the accountability for that and recognize that I made a mistake and this is how I'm correcting myself. Um, and uh, also, I wanted to show that there were times that even when I had gotten to this point of feeling much more confident in myself and being 
um, more self-assured. There are moments where I still regress and have to pull myself back out of, of that muck. Can you tell me about the title of the book and what inspired that? Sure. The title, uh, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, is a line from a Prince song um, called If I Was Your Girlfriend from his uh, 1987 album, Sign of the Times. And after many, many years, I finally realized that it is my favorite Prince song of all time. And I I wanted to, to title the book this because that is... That is often what I do when I'm like sit- sitting and fantasizing about my life and thinking about what if I had everything that could make me happy and um, wouldn't that be kind of trippy to to mm-hmm. <laughs> to have that and then trying to figure out um, you know what is actually going to make me happy uh, you know some people say material things aren't going to make you happy well you know if I had money maybe I wouldn't be uh, so depressed. <laughs> Like, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, But also the song itself is about Prince is singing about um, changing the nature of his relationship with this particular woman in order to keep her in his life, in order for him to stay in her life. And um, like, you know, I can't be your man anymore, but what if I'm your girlfriend? And what if I could still be uh, close to you in a different way? And that's what I've had to do with my life is like, look at things from a different angle and try to figure out uh, a better way of relating to certain things or a better way of connecting to someone or to my dreams um, because they don't, they didn't happen in the way that I thought that they were going to happen. And I had to open myself up to different perspectives and different ways of achieving my goals. And that's kind of uh, how I see that song mirroring my life in that way. Man, I, um, I love that. I love hearing that. Uh, you know, you get so vulnerable in this book, writing about your own messiness and, um, you know, and you, you do it in a way that I think is just also really generous and kind to the other people in your life. Because I like, I speak like, you know, speaking for myself, I think something that I struggle with a lot in, with this kind of writing is how do, how do I, be fair to myself about what happened, like what my story is, but also how do I protect the other people who are not telling their stories, you know, as, as they're simultaneously happening. And so I wonder for you, like how you negotiate that, like writing about yourself, knowing that it also affects other people. Yeah. I had to figure out how much of other people's stories I could tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried my best to only tell their stories where it crossed with mine, um, you know, and things that I knew for sure. And if I didn't know them for sure, then I, you know, I tried to express that in the book and just say, you know, according to family lore, you know, or something like that, or, you know, this is the story that I heard, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, there were things that I definitely felt weird about um, talking about. Like I love my mother and it was really hard for me to write down that there were times that I could tell that she was jealous of me. And so I, I just kind of threw, I think I literally only put that sentence in there and then I hurried away from it. Um, but I did want to acknowledge that, you know, that, that I could feel my mother's jealousy um, in response to the way that my father treated us. Um, you know, my father was 
um, an abusive addict and he would, um, you know, he would beat my mother, but would be very loving to me. And I think my mother resented that or she didn't understand it, you know, and she was a young woman. Um, so she was also a teen mother. She had my sister when she was 16. And so she just didn't have time to mature, uh, in a particular way, in the same way that I did, you know, um, and so I think she didn't know how to express those feelings uh, that she was, uh, you know, going through, you know, as a victim of domestic abuse and trying to raise a family and all that kind of stuff. And seeing this man who says he loves you, treat you one way and then treat somebody else that he loves another way. It's, um, you know, that's hard. And I just, but I didn't want to get too much into my mom's story and, and, try to analyze her, but I did want to acknowledge that. So, um, yeah, so there were times where I was just like, okay, how much, how much of this story do I need, um, in order for the reader to understand me in order for me to understand where I'm going with the rest of my story. Um, and obviously I left a lot of things out and, um, not just with my family, but also myself, um, and I have one person I saw a review very early on um, that was upset that I did not go deeper into my trauma. And like they resented that I was so sexual in the book, uh, but did not talk more about the bad things that happened to me. Right. And that really, that really upset me because I feel like, you know, I feel like I talked about enough of my trauma and the bad things that happen. You know, I talk about my abusive father. I talk about a sexual assault. I talk about someone stalking me. I talk about, uh, you know, an affair that I participated in. What more, what other kind of trauma do you want me to give you <laughs> to make it okay for me to tell my story? Um, and it's also just weird to be like, you know, she gives us too much of her pleasure and I want, I want more of her pain. You know, that's kind of, an odd thing. And it's something that I wanted to push back against um, because I feel like a lot of <sighs> the black women aren't really allowed to write about themselves unless they have a lot of pain in their stories. And we do have a lot of pain, of course, but that's not all that we are. And so I want, I just wanted to talk about finding power and becoming, um, you know, becoming a goddess. <laughs> it's just like, you know, reclaiming uh, myself. That's really what I wanted to to talk most about with the book and how, uh, again, I don't have all the answers and I'm just like going with the punch and as um, going with the punches. And as soon as I kind of just like relaxed into myself, things got better. Man, I, this thing that you're saying about pain is literally giving me a physical reaction because like, like, wow, what a, I, yeah, what an experience of being like a black woman and, and a black woman writer specifically where you're right. It's like people want you, people want you to share your pain and your trauma, but your pain and your trauma also have to share a very specific, like they have to follow a very specific script because <laughs> you have to be miserable in a very particular kind of way. And, and I, yeah, I just, I think that it is, it is exhausting to have to like conform to someone else's script, but also it's just so reductive, right? Because everyone goes, like everyone's life is their own and you go through your pain, but everyone is allowed to respond to that pain however they want. And, and healing means that you have to do it. You have to do what works for you. And I think that that was such a theme of the book for me. It's 
what kind of life do you want and what works for you? And what works for me does not work for you, but here's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. If, that can, if that can inform anything for you. And I don't know, like, I just appreciated that because I think that when um, people are invited into conversation, it's a very generous act of self-sharing. Like anytime anybody tells you about their life, you don't get to dictate what parts of their life they tell you about. You just get to say, thank you for telling me that because nobody, you know, like we don't owe each other any kind of information. Right. And so when I, when I was reading you, I, I don't know, I was just like very deeply moved by that, by the sense, you know, cause there is, there are, there are many versions of, you know, like people can write a book like this that is literally, as you said, like bullet points or advice, you know, every, every ending is like, and here's how I overcame this particular traumatic experience, do these seven things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that that actually helps anybody, but who am I to say that? And, um, but you know, but again, it's like writing the book that you want to write is the best thing that you can do for yourself. But I think that as readers, that's also the, the best thing that we can receive from it. Right. And so, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to articulate that too, because while our stories are like very different, there were just like the ways that you explained situations that you were in, or you explained how, you know, like how you moved on from them, or sometimes how you did not move on from them. Like that thinking process is more informative than, okay, what's the specific kind of pain that Nicole Perkins is <laughs> You're like, tell me, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? But I think it also just makes me sad knowing that, you know, as Black women, like we hold a lot of trauma, but even within that trauma to be expected to perform about it, it's just very painful to realize. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when I was talking to my agent, when we were first like, um, you know, drafting the book proposal and I was telling her what I was thinking about. I was just like, I do not want this to be a book that confirms being a black woman is hard uh, because that's not how I feel. Like I love being a black woman. I love being black. I love being a woman. And there's no way to separate any of that um, from my life, from the, from the threads of my life. And I don't want, I don't want anyone to read this book and come away like, wow, she had it so hard and her life is awful. And all, like, I, I did not want that um, at all. So um, again, I just wanted to be honest about the things that I had gone through and let, and I, I really wanted to show the diversity of black womanhood and that we do not always follow this script. Like you were talking about that. There is not this, this, one life that we are all living um, just in different regions of the world or something. Um, and so I really, that's, I don't know. My, my goal in writing this book is multi-layered. Um, um, but I hope that when people read it, that, um, that not only do they obviously see more of me and, and, you know, they understand me a little better, but also they understand themselves or they realize something about themselves and, um, they give themselves permission to, to, um, fully be who they are. Yeah. Wow. Um, to fully be who we all are. What a, what a dream. What a dream.
Nicole, you're really like very, very intentionally like self-reflective person. But I imagine that like even writing something like this is teaching you new things about yourself. Like what did you learn about yourself through writing this memoir? I learned that uh, I am a being of longing. I didn't realize how much that came across. And actually someone had to say, I can't remember who who it was, but um, they said that this is a book of longing. And I guess that's what it is. Um, um, I feel like I'm constantly craving for something that's just like within um, arm's reach, but I can't seem to hold on to it. And so I've been uh, trying to figure out what it is that I want. Um, you know, I, I thought that I knew what I want. I think I'm pretty sh- confident I do know what I want, but I guess there's something else out there for me. So I'm trying to figure out what that is. I also learned that like, I think I'm finished telling particular stories. So there's one story, uh, the chapter is scandalous, where I talk about the affair that I had with um, a married man. And I, I think I'm done telling that story. It's been a part of my life since I was 25, 26 years old. I'm 44 now. And I think I'm done. And it's not that I keep retelling the story because I'm still pining over that guy or pining over their relationship or anything like that. But I think I really, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to take from that experience. You know, I wasn't sure what the lesson was. And I think I finally realized that the lesson was just, um, you know, sometimes I am not the victim of circumstances. Sometimes I actually am controlling my circumstances and that I I am the bad guy sometimes. And um, I don't have to stay the bad guy. And I can, I can learn from that. And um, not to say that this was a redemption story, uh, but I think I just needed to remember that, um, you know, sometimes I do things that are not, uh, not in the best, they're not the best decision, um, but I can still pull something from the situation. I mean, I'm not the bad guy. Some I, I am the bad guy sometimes is obviously the name of your next book. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> That's it. It's like the Nicole Perkins story. I am the bad guy sometimes. (laughs) You know what though? I like Nicole, I'm just so struck like talking to you about this, feeling that you know, even hearing you say, Oh, I don't sometimes I don't make good decisions or I, I do things that are not, you know, not great. Again, to me it's it's a matter of like what is the societal standard, right? And is also sometimes the standard is a full scam. But, you know, it, it takes a lot of resistance to become a person in the world. And I, fe- and I think that, like, the, the more resistance you face, the, the better, you know, the more sharpened you are as a person and everybody faces their own set of circumstances. But so much of just, like, the privilege of growing up into adulthood is that you get to look back on it and say, okay, that wasn't the best and it's fine. It didn't destroy me. Or I'm or I did the thing that I wanted to do. And I think that particularly as black women, it's important to have agency on those decisions, even if they are, you know, like quote unquote bad or they're not the best. Yeah. And um, I've always been very self-aware and I think that may have saved me from a lot of excessive bullying (laughs) um, because it's hard to, it's hard to bully someone who knows who they are. Um, And I mean, you know, I had the childhood 
stuff where people made fun of me and that kind of thing because that's what kids do. But it never got to a point of like, you know, me feeling um, helpless uh, in those situations. And I think that's also a way that I have saved myself from uh, parasitic relationships where people are just using each other because I, if I don't like you, if I don't care for you, it's very obvious, you know, and I can't just like put on a little front and be like, Oh girl, yeah, you're my bestie. And then I'm, you know, hating you, um, as soon as you turn away from me. So I've never had like real frenemies. I don't think, uh, anyway, um, just because I'm very aware of all of my, flaws and and those things um and the things that are like make me a terrible friend or something like that um so but part of that is because i am very i've always been very clear about boundaries and like who gets my time and who doesn't and i was called you know wishy-washy or um uh you know i was told that um I think I'm too good for people and all this kind of stuff. And really it's just, I'm an introverted person and I don't want to give you my time or your bad energy. And I don't feel like I have to be around you. Uh, so I'm going to go away. And I think that has saved me from a lot of mess and a lot of unnecessary drama in my life. It's been a little lonely sometimes, <laughs> but it keeps me, it keeps me, in touch with that agency. It keeps mm -hmm. me in touch with being able to make decisions for myself or I'm just like, no, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to be bothered by these people. I don't want to have this person in my life. Um, I've never been good at networking or anything like that because it is, it, you can read my emotions on my face. And if you say something to me that is ridiculous, it just, it just shows. Um, so that has helped me just stay in control uh, of who I am and who I want to be. Don't know if that comes across in the book, but I. Uh... Are you kidding? That <laughs> one of the main themes of your book is living outside the, the expectations of other people. I have like the message was received. <laughs> <laughs> If that, was, if that was on your checklist, I was like, no, message received. Just got it. <laughs> For sure. And my mom and my family, they always called me the rebel. And, you know, I really wasn't that rebellious. It was just I would question authority. Right. Um, and I would just be like, why am I supposed to do this just because it's expected of me? And nobody could tell me any reason why other than that's just how it is. Right. Like going to church all the time. Why do I have to go to church and listen to this sermon that is not for me. What is the purpose? Well, you just go to church. That's what you need. You have to, it's like, okay, well, I just need more than that. Like, why do I have to wear a dress to my knee? Like what, you know, all that kind of stuff. I just would question. Um, and I got labeled as difficult for, um, you know, wanting things explained to me. It's not necessarily right. like explain to me why, the sky is blue, you know, though, you know, some things I'm fine with just like being like, okay, that's just how it is. But um, I guess when it comes to people wanting me to do something as uh, wanting an action from me, I need to know why you deserve this action from me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I really identify with that and I, I don't know. I think again, 
it's I know that we say that like the black woman diaspora is not the same, but the things that we have in common are quite frightening, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, we're very different people. And then and then I hear you speak and I'm like, hmm, boundaries. Hmm. Um <laughs> questioning authority. Hmm. Like where? Um, you know, I wonder I wonder where all of that's from. But you know, some of it I think is so much because the the box that we are like the box that we are boxed into is so small and it is so restrictive, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think sometimes I really wonder if, and I'm sure that people who are marginalized in, in all in various ways have a varying, you know, different experience with this, but there are times where I wonder if, you know, the, the particular like marginalization that we feel as black women, um, what the upsides of that have ended up being long-term you know, and I think like long term when no one is checking for you from the beginning, like it's obviously like very painful and it's terrible and <laughs> life should not be that way. But the gift of that really, and I and I don't use that word like flippantly, the gift of that is that you really learn to trust yourself and your own instincts yes. because, you, because you can't rely on anyone else's instincts, you know, or... There, there is just something about like constantly being told that you are not enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not soft enough, you're not gentle enough, you're not all of the things that mean that you really have to learn how to be in touch with yourself. And maybe, and it's a painful lesson to learn, but maybe long term, that's the thing that everyone should be learning anyway. So in some ways, you know, I feel like you are light years ahead of so many people. And it's why it's why it's, it's why it's delightful to turn to you for this kind of introspection. Thank you. It is hard earned because like I said, it has been very lonely at times um, because when you don't let people use you, you end up alone. (laughs) Wow. 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 Nicole. (laughs) I'm sorry. When you don't let people use you, it's lonely. Got it. (laughs) Um, Because I think about like, you know, my mom and my sister and women that I will be, you know, uh, that I would work with who were married and they would just be like, you have to be softer. You have to let a man feel like a man. And the thing was, I am very, um, I'm sorry for the essentialism, but I am very girly. Like when I am in a relationship and I love you and I am just like a gooey, super soft, like, honey, do you want this? Do you want, I am like that. But that is only after you have earned my love and my trust and all of that kind of thing. So I just don't, I don't pretend to be a girlfriend. I don't pretend to be a wife until I am those things. Um, And so people would tell me that I had to like, I guess, give the preview of what it could be like to be married to me, to be in a relationship with me. Absolutely not. And then I tried, I really did. I tried and it just did not sit well with me. And these men still left, um, you know, that kind of thing. And even if I, when I applied that to my professional life, where I tried to come into a job and do all the tasks and do the overtime and take on other people's work and do all this kind of stuff, because I'm trying to show that I'm a team player and I deserve this promotion and I would not get shit. I would just get more work. I don't, so I didn't, that just really bothered me. I didn't want to keep doing that. And I should not be punished for being good by getting uh, used and taken advantage of. Cause that's how I was reading it for a really long time. Like when you're a good employee, when you're a good partner, someone's going to take advantage of you. And I, 
I closed down for a very long time because of that. Um, and I am just now trying to crawl out of that space, out of that shell where I'm trying to protect myself from being used and taken advantage of. Um, and I remember uh, some coworkers were just like, all men cheat. You just have to get used to it or you just have to like do what you can to keep him satisfied at home. And I was just like, you know what? I refuse to accept that. I refuse to believe that I am just supposed to be taken advantage of and just stay at home sniffling and crying while he's out doing his thing. I just can't. I, I can't do that. And so that's when I just kind of was like, if if the way that I have to be happy is to avoid that life, then that's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, I've, I've avoided it. Um, and again, it does get a little lonesome and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to figure out like there has to be a better way. And I haven't figured out that better way yet. I don't know why I keep going back to relationships. I think it's on my mind because I've, uh, some of my girlfriends and I have been texting this week Mm -hmm. about relationships and, um, trying to figure out like, why can't our romantic relationships have the same sort of excitement and verve as our friendships, as our, you know, platonic friendships and and relationships uh, between women. And it's just been on my mind. So I apologize. I don't mean to make this all about like, (laughs) I am sorry. I'm going to stop this interview. If you like, if there's an apology in here, I don't know. I, I, but I, you know, like not to get too vulnerable. Um, well, even though in your book, uh, like through reading your book, um, I learned that vulnerability should be uh, protected and not feared. Yes. Um, but, you know, that I think, I think that the reason, you know, desirability is obviously like such a running theme throughout the book. And I, you write about sex and romance in these like very assertive ways. Like I was really, um, I like, I was really struck by that. Like, I was like, oh yeah, like here's a woman who knows what she wants, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, but also like acknowledging that, that when you know what you want and, um, and, and you, you have a different model for, for what you want. So there's the model that society is, is selling you that it is lonely and it is hard. And I don't know, like relationships are obviously like very front of mind right now. I, I think the pandemic also has a lot to do with that. It's like the world is so small. So once you start looking at the, the buckets of how you are in relationship with people, the ones that are, you know, the ones that are smaller tend to stand out. But I don't know, you know, I that question of like, why can romantic relationships not have the same verve as some of the platonic relationships that we have? Like that is something that keeps me awake at night. Yeah, it's really scary (laughs) like why do we have to crumble and die uh so much in romantic relationships uh and get told oh that's just compromise or that's just what happens you you're not as intimate anymore you're not as whatever anymore and I I just have a hard time believing that and I guess I'm I don't know I'm waiting for someone to help me disprove that yeah I think you know like man, this is so funny. I feel like I, like I should just like fold you into another group chat I'm in because (laughs) we're having the same conversation. Be like, hi y'all, meet Nicole. Um, You know, I think it's like some days I, I, I struggle with that where it's like, okay, like who is the person that's going to come along and disprove this for me? And then other days it really is, um, is someone even supposed to disprove that to me at all? You know, like why, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, actually like I, I, 
And I don't mean to like intellectualize it or to be like, oh, like, you know, like being single is not difficult in its in its own way. It's just, I think that I am like really questioning the fundamental idea of, is it like, do you have to have a romantic partner in that way in your life? You know? Right, yeah. Wanting And wanting one is not a crime, obviously. And having one is not a crime. But the, the question for me is, where does this desire even come from? Because when I, when I, I, I don't know, when I think about like desirability so much, the, the frame is always like, how am I desirable to someone else? Mm-hmm. And recently for me, it has been like, why is romantic relationship like desirable at all? You know, where like, mm-hmm. it's not about me. It's like, if I start from a place where like, oh, actually, no, 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 I am like a desirable person, like acquired taste for sure. But you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's someone for everyone. But really just like questioning that, like that frame itself and questioning my own desire for that kind of relationship, um, you know, without like, without negating it or diminishing it. I think, you know, I was like, if you desire something, it is powerful and it's interesting. It's, it's powerful to listen to that signal because I think that signal tells me more about myself than like being in the relationship itself, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is like, you know, it's just, it's hard. Also, I think that, you know, it's like the, the messaging, the romantic messaging is just like very powerful. It's just very powerful. They're like, you got to be in a fairy tale. Even in our like more liberal, you know, like evolved worlds, there are still like, there are still expectations, you know, like within that script. And so it's interesting when you realize that you were outside of a very, a very rigid social norm. Right. And like society is constantly telling us that you have to be at least a couple uh, in some way, right? Like even if you, if you win a free trip in a contest, it's always for two, right? Um, if you, right, I, mean, well, I can't go to the Maldives because every, like I can't go to the Maldives with my friend and share a room because every bed is a, is like a king bed. Cause they only- <laughs> <laughs> this has been, this has been the bane of existence of certain trips that I've taken where it's like all of these, you know, like people we want to go and you don't necessarily want to share I bed with someone all the time. And I was like, wow, this culture of hotels that only like cater to people who are sleeping in the same bed is wild to me. It is so wild. I've experienced this so many times with um, me and my good friend, Mickey. We often travel together. We'll go to like, you know, little resorts and stuff like that just to take it easy. And we get separate rooms, but because they see, you know, because the staff sees us, uh, together, like, you know, having dinner together and getting drinks, they're trying to figure out, are we a couple or not? And, you know, they ask us all these really strange questions uh, to basically try to, like I said, to, to see if we're together. And when we say, oh, no, we're not together, we're just here as friends, they physically relax, you know, which is, you know, I don't want to call it, say that's homophobia, but maybe it is. I don't know, but they- <laughs> jumping out. it is jumping out, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I think, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And so they, they relax and they become more friendly. They, uh, even though we're usually at someplace all inclusive, they really turn on the drinks then, you know? Um, and I still end up with like, uh, even though I'm in a room by myself, when they do turn down service, they still put the roses on the bed and spell out welcome or good night, you know, like, you know, because, <laughs> and I'm just like, well, thanks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This but is- yeah, so we, yeah, so we get all these messages all over the place that there has to be at least, you have to be a, a part of some kind of pair, right? Like even when you're these little 
Instagram contest, tag your bestie. Well, what if I don't have a bestie? Now you're making me feel bad and I have to like tag Listen, my her besties. But if you ever need to tag someone on Instagram to win some free shit, tag me because I want to go where you're going. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just we get all this messaging all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. So I, I, I'm just going to blame the capital S society for that. But um, yeah, I desire has been, it really has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Like, you know, in the book, I talk about reading the biblical song of Solomon and just being struck by the poetry of it, but also the the heat of it. Um, I was very surprised to see that in the Bible and that we're just supposed to ignore it it and then ignore our bodies um right the bible is like full of lust and then it's like don't lust and i'm like but you just described the lust exactly (laughs) exactly it's like yeah it's like the dare program when they come in there and they tell you how delicious drugs are and then well here's the problem here's the problem you shouldn't have told me that it was amazing (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i just i'm i'm fascinated by what people want and how they express what they want and the ways that we have been told um, not to be too expressive about those things. Um, So that has always uh, just been a part of my life. And I, I want to give space for women, especially black women to be open about what they want and what they desire. And that doesn't just necessarily mean sexually, but just in their lives in Mm -hmm. general. Um, Because we are told you can't be too obvious. If you say what you want, then you're never going to get it. Or there are all these different, you know, little rules that come into play when you're trying to be open uh, about what you want. And then, you know, on the relationship side, in my experience, um, I have had men, you know, once I felt more confident and self-assured. I've had men tell me that they are intimidated by that because they're like, wow, you really know what you want. And then I guess that for them, they get afraid that they can't give me what I want. Mm. Right. Because it's like, they can't tell me what I want. I already know what I want. So if they can't um, implant an idea in my mind, (laughs) then they're just like, super afraid and freaked out and they they I don't know they get weird about it and it's just like well instead of being upset that you can't tell me what I want or you can't tell me how to feel why don't you try your best to give me what I want and then when you actually do or if you actually do you can really pat yourself on the back for such an amazing job right like yeah but that's not what the cultural script says right and the cultural script is strong for like in heterosexual relationships is like strong for women it's also very strong for men and it's diminishing in its own way not me feeling sorry for men wow no 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 no. take it back take it back um but you know what i mean where it's just it's it is like really it is just really sad that the like what like patriarchy like does to all of us because it just means that everyone is a smaller version of who they could be like every single one of us and that is I think that that makes me like profoundly sad yes and that's part of what I talk about a little bit in the chapter don't take my roses from me where I'm talking about the guy who stalked me and that you know that relationship started out just strictly um 
I just wanted him to eat me out. And that was it. And I told him that. And then I just got like, I don't know. I was, I had moved to New York. I was here in New York um, for the first time. And uh, again, just like wanting some attention. And I let the relationship escalate in a way that was uncomfortable. That was uncomfortable to me, but I was still just like, okay, let me just, let me be selfish or let me just see how this is going to go. And it did not go well. Um, And I had to learn or relearn how to stick to what I want, stick to my original plan. This is what I wanted. This is how it should have gone. And I was trying to be nice, right? I was trying to be that dreaded womanly nice um, thing and, and not hurt his feelings, but also... He was a he was a much bigger dude, and so I was afraid of him a little bit, um, and uh, it just didn't go well. It didn't go well for me, and it taught me that I should not compromise myself to make someone else feel good about my discomfort. Hmm. You know, something that that chapter also reinforced for me is something that I've been trying to unlearn a lot in recent years. Just that shame of if a desire that I have has a bad outcome like this, like, oh, I just, um, you know, wanting someone to eat you out is not a crime. Um, and <laughs> if it results if it results in criminal activity, aka stalking, um, it is not my fault because it's not a crime to have desires, you know, but I think that I have just like, I, I had personally like really internalized that if something bad happened, it is because it was my, like the thing that I wanted was bad or that I caused it or that I brought it onto myself and really like having to renegotiate that space where it's like, no, no, it's, it's okay to want things. And it is like, everyone gets to, like, everyone is, um, has agency in how they act in, um, in these kinds of, of situations. And really having to unlearn, like, shouldering all of the blame for something that was going wrong, I think that's something that I've had to do over and over again. hmm hmm And I have, um, I've had, since then, I've had relationships that were just, you know, the guy just comes over, eats me out, and leave, um, and leaves. And so I had to make sure that I did not let this one bad situation ruin my pleasure uh, for the rest of my life, you know, for mm-hmm. any extended period of time. And just really had to hold on to this idea that this was this one isolated incident and I learned my lesson and I can go back to enjoying this particular thing that I enjoy and I will be okay. I can still be safe even after having been unsafe at one point. Yeah, not to ask you to like give advice because that is so clearly not the the work that your book is doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I also also you know I I just always resent that um, whenever yeah a black woman writes a book, everyone is like, oh, here's how you're supposed to live life, and you're like, this is not the project this woman embarked on doing. So please don't project that onto her. <laughs> but you know, like I wonder when um, because you write so candidly and talk so candidly about sexual desire, how like how you have negotiated from yourself, like separating, separating that from shame. That is, you know, because I think that culturally that is the message that a lot of women receive. And for black women, like the added layer of just, you know, like being told that we are fast and being over-sexualized, like so young also really, you know, like it contributes for, to some people for like a deep sense of shame or, or really suppressing that desire. But I wonder for you, like, 
how do you think that you've been able to like navigate that space and come out on the side of like being really proactive about your sexual pleasure? Yeah, so I started, once I started trying to reclaim my sexuality and what I wanted, I did, I, I overcorrected, I guess. And I um, did that thing where it was like, well, if guys can do it, I can do it too. And I realized I did not want to be like a man because men can be terrible. Um, and I didn't, I did not want to embrace the terrible sides of being um sexually free or sexually bold. I just wanted, I wanted the pleasure side of that. And then, so I had to, um, it was really like turning a knob, like going, you know, like trying to figure out the right station on, on the radio, to like getting rid of all the static on one side and, you know, moving the dial back to another side, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, it's, it took a while and I just learned, um, that I can still express myself. And I, I, I guess I do a lot of code switching with how I express myself because mm-hmm. I still talk about sex freely, but obviously sometimes in some situations I'm not going to curse as much or I'm not going to, I'm going to use more euphemisms and be silly with how I express it. Just trial and error with it a, a lot. And I, I remember being in college and like trying to have a conversation with my boyfriend and his friends who were all guys. And afterwards, um, it was a conversation about dating and and sex and stuff. And afterwards, my boyfriend was just like, uh, maybe just chill a little bit on talking about sex with with you know, with the guys. And I was like, why? And he was like, because when women talk about sex, men think about having sex with them. And I was just like, like, nobody's thinking about having sex with me just because I'm talking about sex. And then you know, like they're thinking about it because I'm hot. Hello, first of all, already <laughs> 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 happened. <laughs> but that that really helped. Uh, that really helped me understand why people don't like for women to talk about sex because people just don't know how to separate a woman just talking from um from like their own desires of that woman you know, um, mm-hmm. or their desires for that woman, uh, I guess I should say. And um, I don't know. So that, that kind of changed it, changed the way I, I think about these things and how I try to be really silly and goofy about it. Because I think that's another thing that people, that confuses people about me. They they know that I am very bold about sex, but I am not, you know, Mae West. I am not Rihanna. I am not like, Lil' Kim or a Nicki Minaj, you know, I don't have this very like booksum vixen appearance and I don't carry myself in that way. You know, I'm not like this Betty Page kind of thing. I'm very old. I'm sorry. So like, I don't have any like current. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I don't have this like, oh yeah, I want you to come up and see me sometime. You know, like that's not how I am. And it confuses people because that's all people think. If you're bold and you talk about sex, that means you want to have sex all the time and that you're constantly oozing sex. I'm like, no, I'm actually really fucking awkward and goofy and silly all the time. And I'm just upfront about sex because I don't know how to be smooth with it. Like, I don't know how to flirt. I'm just kind of like, oh, hi, we find each other attractive, right? So do you want to go back to my place? Like, that's just, (laughs) that's just it for me. And I'm not smooth with it. And People just, they don't know how to to react 
to me. And I think that throws them off. And I hope that it throws them off in such a way that it causes them to rethink the way they think about women in general being sexual beings and that we aren't all like vixens just because we enjoy sex. Um, you know, there are, uh, it's the same way that I get frustrated with like feminism and slut walks and things like that. Like I think, fem- you know, it should be about a choice and that being uh, comfortable in your sexuality does not mean that you are going to be walking down the street naked and, you know, giving blowjobs out on the street or, you know, just randomly scissoring people on the street. You can still be a monogamous person. You can be an asexual person, but still be upfront about those things. Um, And it should be okay. And I I really just want, I just want to give room and space to people to express their identities and who they are in a comfortable way that works for them and that they, you know, feel like they don't have to, they don't have to be one way in order to be sexually confident or to be, uh, you know, assured in their sexuality. Man, Nicole, I could talk to you forever and ever and ever, like truly. And I could talk about these essays for a long time. I've been, I've loved like giving this book to some of my like really close girlfriends because so much of what you're saying is so, um, it's so deeply of the moment for all of us, you know? And, and, and while I was reading it, I like, I also wondered because so many times you like talk about being, you know, unsure about, you know, what the next step is and just saying like, well, fi- I don't know what the solution is, but we'll figure it out. And yeah. so, and the answer to so much of that for me, was just, you know, maybe, maybe all that's going on is that getting older actually is a privilege and the privilege of getting older means that you get to change your mind. You get to have more information. You get to try new things. You get to like, I don't know. It made me feel hopeful about having a future and growing old in a way that I just, um, I hadn't like quite realized. I was like, Oh, it's okay to like want new things. It's okay to make different decisions. It's, it's okay to have some grace for, you know, the, the idiot that I used to be when I was like 22. Like it's fine. All of it is fine. Yay. That makes me very happy because that's, that's exactly what I wanted um, to get across that you just have to keep changing and just like finding new ways to approach the problem. Um, and that we, I think, you know, we have this example uh, and I say we, I'm generation X and maybe some older millennials also have this thing where we've seen our parents or our loved ones um you know, in the same situation for 30, 40 years or whatever. And we think that that's what we're supposed to have as well. But we, we're not the same people. Uh, we change daily. Um, and so we have to be able to change how we approach certain things and just figure out new answers. Um, yeah. And some sometimes uh, the solution to the same problem is different. So, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate this. This is, um, thank you for letting me ramble and go all over the place. And I, I just, I'm really glad that the book resonated with you. It means a lot to me. If this is you rambling, I, I can't even imagine, um, when you are like, when you're like fully caffeinated, like on top of it, because this was amazing for me. Um, thank you, Nicole. I've just like really enjoyed reading you and, I think this book is, it's such a good conversation. And also you said earlier that you didn't think that you were very funny. You were hilarious. Like there was a line, there was a line about like something about like being like 
satellite titties being high like what oh. like, like underlining and then they laugh so hard <laughs> and uh so yeah to everyone that's listening you have to buy the book just so you can like read the like funny lol asides because there were some like real gems in there <laughs> Yeah, my friends and I, we uh, whenever we get high, we it's like a little competition. Sometimes we're as high as satellite titties. Sometimes we're as high as comet coochie. It's we just say these things. So <laughs> listen, I um I loved it. Thank you so much, Nicole. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. You too. What a joy. A true joy, like a true, true, true joy. And someone who um, I hope keeps writing forever and ever and ever because I'm excited to read her forever and ever and ever. Ugh, amen. I will see you on the internet. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvacchi.